In the name of the Father and the Son and God's Holy Spirit, one God, amen. I feel like I'm really lacking because I don't have a magic act to do at this point. <laughs> Many years ago, uh, when I was working uh, at a YMCA summer camp, two third grade boys, Nigel and Stephen, came running up to me. It was right before an evening uh, chapel service overlooking the lake. Breathless, they burst out with the news. That very afternoon, they said they had become blood brothers. Under the pine trees, down by the waterfront, they had pledged their loyalty to each other forever, and they just wanted me to know about it. Such pledges of friendship are not uncommon, of course, in childhood. We adults, we smile, knowing that forever might mean just till the end of that two-week camp time or the graduation from third grade. But forever for Nigel and Stephen that day meant forever. Their strong feelings for each other were very real, and they had not yet learned that boys shouldn't show too much affection for each other. They hadn't yet been scared into keeping friends at an arm's length. But early, and I would say very early, we are taught demeaning labels that warn us not to take our friends too seriously. And so we wave a nostalgic farewell to our blood brothers or sisters from childhood, leaving them behind under the pine trees of summer. It's time to grow up, we tell ourselves. David and Jonathan, they were childhood friends. If you went to summer sun, Sunday school, you may remember a Sunday school teacher who walked David and Jonathan across some flannel board with the quivers of arrows on their backs. And the teacher talked to you about the importance of friendship and, um, and how great it is to have friends to play with. Of course, no one told us that story in confirmation class. We got to the point where we left the Sunday school leaflets about David and Jonathan behind and we replaced them with the Psalms of David. We have gone on to more important things. And if we ever remember the old story of Jonathan and David, we are sometimes embarrassed at the words on the page. Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own life. It was a good story in grade school, but better passed over when we made it to confirmation class. We have to think about more important issues and about more normal relationships. And yet, the scriptures have preserved this story as one of the most beautiful pictures of human love. In many ways, that's very hard to explain, given a culture uh, that was so emphasizing procreation and that saw God's blessings as manifested in the number of your descendants. I mean, really, there was very little reason to preserve a story about the friendship between two men. 
But whatever the reason may be, we can be thankful that the scribes didn't just abandon it like some worn-out Sunday school leaflet kept in the file drawer. And so the story comes to us this morning um, as grown-ups, as a reminder about those blood brothers and sisters from childhood and the friendships under the pine trees. But perhaps even mourning and more invites us to think again about the importance of friendship in our lives today. And of course, I raise this on Father's Day uh, because this is something that we men tend to struggle with. In fact, one group of sociologists estimates that the average male over 35 in this society may have one friend. And upon closer examination, that friendship, they conclude, um, by most women would be considered to be just a casual acquaintance. Sometimes I think that when we were off learning how to play ball or play the drums, somebody else took all the girls aside and taught them how to have relationships. Now, the same group of sociologists asked a, a group of men why they thought they have such few friends. And what do you think was the number one answer? Don't have time. Too busy making a living, taking care of the gardening, spending time with the kids, being involved at church. Do you know it took three rehearsals to put together these anthems? Three rehearsals. The second answer was, don't know how. And I suspect there is some truth in that. Um, while some of us were off learning to hit the hanging curveball or learning how to dribble with the offhand, somebody else somewhere was teaching people how to talk to each other and maybe even how to listen. And yet the more I thought about that, the more I decided that both of these are probably surface answers. In other words, there's some truth here, but it's not the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Because you and I both know that we find time for what is most important to us. Somebody says, I don't have time. What that means is, I don't really care that much about this. It's not really a priority in my life at this point. And we all know that we learn to do just about anything that we really care about. I mean, anybody who has learned to play golf knows that. So it is really not a question of time or know-how. If it were, people would not be writing so many books about the friendless American male. No, I think it is really a question of values. You see, the rap on we men is that we're not interested in relationships. We are emotionally remote. And like most myths, there is an element of truth there. But it can also be misleading. The truth, I think, is that many men are very interested in relationships. If we were honest, we would admit that as often as not, we are really lonely. But there are these values inside of us. Values about what it means to be a successful man. And they get in the way. And they do battle with the values that make for a good friend. So what are some of those values? Well, this morning, let me suggest three, because every good sermon should have three points. 
And in order to get at the first one, we have to go very, all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, says Genesis. In the beginning was the relation, according to the Jewish theologian Martin Buber. So not only creation, but relation. God who longed not only to be, but to be with. What happened to those relationships? Well, you remember, Adam and Eve had two sons, right? Cain and Abel. It always amuses me that Bible literalists never ask the question, well, if they only had two sons, I wonder where the rest of us came from. But that, of course, is another sermon. So what happened with Cain and Abel? Well, Cain, you remember, was a tiller of the ground. He was a farmer. And Abel took care of the sheep, a shepherd. So we have the farmers and the sheep. And Genesis 4 says, The Lord looked favorably upon the offering of Abel, but for the offering of Cain, the Lord had no regard. And so, while they were out in the field one day, Cain rose up and he killed his brother Abel. So here's the first story about the relationship between two men in the Bible, and how does it end? Not so good. I don't want to dive too deeply into this passage, except to say that I think here is one of the values that is deeply rooted in our culture that just destroys friendship. Comparison leads to competition, and endless competition kills community. That's the message of Genesis 4. So Cain compared his offering to Abel. He was competing with his brother in this case for the approval of God. Now, some of us will say, well, we don't compare our offerings. And of course, that's absolutely true. One of the things that we like to keep secret is what did you give to the church and what did I give to the church? So what do we compare? Well, we compare lots of things. We compare the number of toys. We can compare how big our house is just to name one thing that we compare big sizes of. We compare job titles. We compare diplomas. We compare the people that we know. We compare our kids. Have you ever watched parents on the soccer sidelines, especially fathers? Those kids have no idea what is at stake out there on the field. We compare our neuroses. Just come to the avenue on the first Saturday of any morning and listen to the discussion of our illnesses. <laughs> Nothing has changed since Genesis 4. Comparison leads to competition, and endless competition kills community. But you see, competition is at the core of masculinity in our culture. We have been taught that winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. Thank you, Mr. Lombardi. And we buy into that hook, line, and sinker. It's not that we don't want friends or that we don't need them. It is that, it is that there are these other values inside of us that keep us at a distance. So what is the contrast to this? Well, I think it begins with the realization that everything in life is not a win-lose proposition. There is such a thing as a win-win. You remember Jesus said, no one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his 
friends. In other words, there is a downward mobility to friendship. Competition says, I will walk all over you to get whatever I want. Cooperation says, I will lay down my life for what you need. Friendship requires sacrifice of time and energy and of this endless one-upmanship and always needing to win. That is why it is not okay for the leader of the free world to sum up every person who disagrees with him as a loser. So one question to ask ourselves is this. Who are you making sacrifices for? A second value that does battle against developing meaningful relationships centers on this whole issue of community versus individualism. Masculinity in our culture is defined by competition and perhaps only more deeply by this rugged individualism. The Lone Ranger typically rides off alone. Robert Bella, in his classic Habits of the Heart, says that individualism is at the very heart of our American culture. But he goes on to say it has not always been just that way. Bella goes on to say that in the, former, in the formative years of our country, at least as important as this rugged individualism, which today defines the American male, at least as important was the commitment to community and to the common good. So not just, I did it my way, thank you, Mr. Sinatra, but also, blessed be the tie that binds. So how do we build community? How do you develop friendships? Well, for most of us, for many of us men, it is a lost art. But here is at least part of the solution. Friendship is built this way. I tell you things. I actually reveal things about myself. I don't withhold. I share. C.S. Lewis once made the distinction between a companion and a friend. He said a companion is somebody that we do things with. So in the days gone by, that was fishing and um, hunting for the tribe. Today, it's the people that we work with. It's the people that we play on the softball team with or that we play a round of golf with. Friendships, he said, is something more. One of the keys of friendship is telling what's really going on inside of us. And that is hard because it requires that you actually have some sense of what it is that you are feeling. But even more, you see, competitive people never reveal secrets. Why? Because they could be used against them. And they would rather live as isolated individuals, as islands of aloneness. Friendship has something to do with vulnerability. And that is not only scary, but it also goes against one of our cherished values. You want to know whether you have friends? Who are you sacrificing for? And who are you really revealing yourself to? A few years ago, I spent a, a weekend at the Kirkridge Retreat Center in Pennsylvania. The topic of the retreat was men and their fathers, unfinished 
business. Fifty men came together to talk about their relationships with their fathers and with their own sons. Here's what made the weekend for me. At one point, we did this little experiment. Um, it was called Top Secret. The leader passed out these three-by-five five, three cards, not unlike what you had this morning, and asked us to write down two memories. One, a very happy memory of our time with our fathers, and the other, a memory of a time with him where we felt ashamed. It was all done anonymously. And then the leader collected all of those cards and redistributed them, and then we read out loud what each of us had read. I can tell you that there was more honesty and there was more healing in that sharing than if the leader had given 10 lectures on the subject. You see, it's a question of values. Values that compete not only out there in our culture, but here in our hearts. Cooperation requires something different than competition. And community is more than just each one looking out for his or her own interests. But listen to this, because you can have cooperation, and you can have community, and you can still be missing one of the key components to a meaningful friendship. Because friendships, like individuals, exist for something more than themselves. So last week I said to the confirmation class, I reminded them of Jesus' words, you did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. We're big about talking about bearing fruit in the Christian community. Walking the walk. Put your money where your mouth is. But most of the time, we think of that in a very individualized way. Am I using my gifts to become all that I can be? The Bible talks about corporately bearing fruit. It talks about brothers and brothers. It talks about sisters and sisters coming together to do something that we cannot do alone. So you see, it's not just my agenda. It's God's agenda. One of our core values is competition. Another is individual, individualism. And a third is like unto it. It is the pride in my own accomplishment. And there is nothing wrong with that. It is just not enough. Community is built by coming together to do something bigger than yourself. So, again, C.S. Lewis says, friendship moves beyond companionship when you realize that you share some concern, some passion. Emerson said, in friendship, the question, do you love me, means, do you see the same truth? Do you care about the same truth? So we picture lovers as standing face to face, but friends we picture standing side by side, looking ahead at the same reality. I can tell you that's always been true in my life. My best friends were always people who I was looking to do something bigger, whether it was to win a high school championship or to run a summer camp, or most recently to build a church where all are welcome and all can freely serve. A third test of friendship is this. 
With whom are you locking arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder, heart to heart, to build something bigger than yourself? One author calls that the warrior within us. And I am reminded of years ago watching television reports about the anniversary of D-Day. As taps resounded over that Normandy beach, grown men stood there weeping on that hillside. In broken voices, they remembered the names of friends who were buried beneath those endless rows of white markers. But I remember thinking as I watched, must men watch their buddies die before they weep? Is it only war that makes friendships forever? Must we always say, oh, he's only a friend? to qualify the love that we have for one another. Three questions. Who are you sacrificing for? Who are you revealing yourself to? And with whom are you working to build something bigger and better than yourself? I haven't seen Nigel and Stephen, my third graders. I haven't seen them in decades. I wonder if they've already forgotten their promise the ones that they made under the pine trees that summer. If they have, I hope they've found others that they can call friend. I hope somewhere along the line they heard a sermon about the importance of friendship as a treasure. I hope that they marked the anniversary of a friendship as surely as they have celebrated other anniversaries in their lives. If that hasn't happened for you in a long time, I invite you back into a story of childhood, a story about two men who loved each other and who made promises to each other before God that lasted even beyond death. David and Jonathan, tell us again about how much you love each other and then help us to cry and to laugh and to embrace each other, and to say I love you to a friend. Help us to know friendship as one of the greatest gifts of God. Amen.